Father, we ask that in the next few moments as we open up your word, uh, that you would clear the clutter in our heads um, and in our hearts, Lord, the baggage that we walk in here with. Uh, cut through all of that and help us to uh, sit at your feet, receive your word, give us ears to hear so that we can be changed by it, um, and that it wouldn't uh, stay in our heads but work its way down to our very beings, uh, our innermost being, and, and change us from the inside out. We ask that you would use your word to do that this morning. Uh, fill me with your spirit, Lord. Be with me as I do my best to read your, your scripture to us and, and by your grace explain what it means. Um, help us to live in response to what it says. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we, we serve a God of forgiveness. I mean, that's the, the, the cross. I mean, that's th that's what it's for. It paid our debt. Amen. And the thing the thing about it is that it, it doesn't matter what your background is, right? I mean, you you might have done some like white sins, you know, like not that bad, and then real dark, nasty, black, dirty, hang, you know, dripping with slime kind of sins or whatever, or anything in between. And you come to the cross and the offer is that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and that God raised Jesus from the dead, you are saved. And there's, there's repentance offered at the cross. Right? And so we believe that. We believe that salvation is by grace. Salvation is not something you can earn. But, but, but is there something that you can do that is so heinous, that is, that is so, it, it crosses a line where there's no coming back from it. Is there something you can do? God forgives sin, but there, is there something you can do that if you do this, if you commit this sin, God will not forgive you? Jesus says there is. Okay, Jesus says there is a sin that if you commit this sin, you will never be pardoned. Okay, so I want us to make sure we walk through this carefully. Okay, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to cover a lot of text because this is one of those sermons uh, where, you know, you don't, you don't get a nice little package of three kind of cute to-dos when you go home that all start with the letter P, okay, <laughs> with a little poem at the end to make you feel good. I mean, this is, we need to unpack this because if there's a sin that if we commit it, there's no going back from it, we should really try our best to understand what that is, Right? I mean, if there's a line that we, are, we can't cross, or if we cross it, there's no going back, I want to know where that line is. I want to know what that is. And Matthew 12 uh, explains that to us. So we're, we're going to start there, Matthew 12. And here's how it's going to look, okay? We're going to see the occasion, what happened historically, that prompted Jesus to explain that there's a, an unforgivable sin. The Pharisees did something, and when they did this something, Jesus responded and said, you know what, guys, there's something, there's something that is unforgivable. There's a sin that you can commit that you can never be forgiven for. So first we're going to look at what happened, and then we're going to look at what Jesus said in response to what happened. Okay? So um, we'll begin in verse 22. You all, you know, we've been walking through Matthew. Jesus has done some healings. 
And every time he does a healing, the Pharisees are there to, to step in and accuse him of something. Verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him. Jesus healed this man. So that the man spoke and saw. He wasn't naturally uh, blind. He wasn't naturally mute. This was a problem that he had because he was demon-oppressed. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the one? Can this be the Messiah that was promised ever since Genesis 3? Can this be the, the king that was supposed to come? Can this be him? It must be him. Who else can do this miraculous kind of work? But when the Pharisees heard it, you know, the, the keepers of the, the, the teachers of the law, the ones that, that, were, um, that had their uh, scripture memorized and were the religious people of the day, the religious leaders, they saw the same thing that the crowd saw, and they said, wow, this must be the Messiah. They didn't say that. They said something different. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub. Beelzebub is, is Satan. It is only by Beelzebub. It's only by the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Okay, so now Jesus hears this accusation. The only reason why Jesus was able to cast out these demons was because he's got a demon himself. He works for the enemy, and that's how he has power over the spirits. Jesus is going to tell them why their argument is bad, and then he's going to bring up the unforgivable sin. Okay? First, why the argument is bad. He says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is, listen to what you're saying. I'm casting out demons by the authority of the demons? That, that doesn't really make sense, okay? I'm using this because we're about to get down, all right? <laughs> He's saying that your argument doesn't make sense because you're saying that Satan is trying his best to take over this world, to rule this world, to press out anything that Jesus is doing, and you're saying that they're going to make it look like I have power by giving me power to cast out the work and reverse the work that they were doing? That, that doesn't make sense. Soldiers shooting their own soldiers. That, no one wins a war that way. Okay? So it's, that's just logic. He's, he's not even pulling out scripture at this point. He's just saying that's just, it's illogical what you're saying. Or the, were the Pharisees dumb? They weren't known for bad logic. They were known for good logic. They were known for good reasoning. They were intelligent. But the problem, he's saying, that the problem is not that they're dumb. The problem is that they're defiant. They're defiant. This is, it's not good reasoning that they have. They just, it doesn't matter what Jesus does. It doesn't matter what he does. He can cast out demons, heal blind people, he can walk on water, he can, he can fly, he can do anything. But it, it doesn't, won't matter. Because the issue is not logic. The issue is not reason. The issue is defiance. I see the evidence right in front of me, but I don't care. I'm going to just make something up. You know, you're a demon. And so he deconstructs their argument, tells them that that doesn't make sense. That's illogical. And then he says that um, 
There's an in-group and an out-group. There's no in-between. That's verse 30. He says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there he makes the point that there, there's no, like, riding the fence. You know, there's no, like, I'm kind of about Jesus, but I'll give the rest of me later. There's an in-group and an out-group, and that's it. And if you're in the out-group, you're not a friend of me, Jesus is saying. You're against me. You're my enemy. And there are sides here. There are sides. You're in that camp or you're in my camp. If you're for me, you're, you're with me or for me. If you're against me, you're in the other camp and you're a part of the, uh, the enemy. Now, he says in verse 31 and 32, anything will be forgiven. God is a God of forgiveness. So let's look at that. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy. You want to cross over from the enemy camp to Jesus' side? You can cross over because you'll be forgiven. Well, what if I did a lot of bad things? That's okay. That's okay. God will forgive that if you repent. And he starts out with that. He says, verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, even if you speak a word against Jesus himself, that will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. You can say a lot of things. You can do a lot of things. You can speak blasphemies against the Son of Man. You can deny that Jesus is God. You can deny that the resurrection happened. And then later at some point, come to the point where, you know what, never mind, I changed my mind. I do believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, and all that blasphemy, that will be forgiven. You get that point? Okay. He's not saying that you can blaspheme the Son and be saved. He's saying you can blaspheme the Son, but there's still hope for you. You can still turn around. You can still come to the place where you'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you end up in a place where there is no coming back. That's the one thing that will not be forgiven. So it's plain that, yes, there is a sin. If you commit it, you will not be forgiven. I want to I address two common explanations of this, okay? We're going to get a little bit more, I don't know, maybe um, explanatory than, than, than normal, maybe. But I want to I look at two common explanations and kind of debunk those, okay, and get those out of our heads because it's just not what, the, it's not what the text is saying. The first one's this. The unforgivable sin is any time you witness the work of Christ and you say, nah, that's not Jesus, that's just the devil doing that. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did, right? They saw Jesus do awesome work, casting out demons, and the crowds were like, man, this must be the one. And then the Pharisees were like, nah, he's not the one. He, that's, that's the devil. Okay? That was the devil doing that. So anytime you see Jesus doing something awesome, and instead of recognizing that it's Jesus, you say, nah, that's the devil. That's the unforgivable sin. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus didn't take issue necessarily with what they said. It wasn't necessarily what they said that he's taking issue with, but something inside of them that produced what they said. There's something inside the Pharisees, something inside a decision they've made in, interiorly that is producing this junk that they're saying. Okay. How do I know that? Look at the little parable that he, that he puts in verse 33 and following. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, 
or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Okay? So if you have a, a bad tree, it's not going to produce good fruit. If you have bad fruit, hello, it's because it's a bad tree. Because there's not a bad tree that produces good fruit. You're not going to have a good tree that produces bad fruit. Okay? Jesus isn't trying to make us all into gardeners. He's using that as an analogy to say, if you're saying things like that, it's because there's something inside of you that makes you bad. Okay? So his problem isn't the fruit that the, that the stuff that the Pharisees are saying. He's saying, your problem isn't you did a bad fruit. You produced a bad fruit. I'll forgive all those other bad fruits, but this one bad fruit, that's bad. That's not what's unforgivable. What's unforgivable is that not that they have a bad fruit, but they're bad trees. Okay, so the unforgivable sin isn't something where you go to the market, someone cuts you off, and you say something, and you're like, darn it. Did I just curse the Holy Spirit? I, did I just commit this? No, the blasphemy of the Spirit is not something you do on a, on a daily basis like you uttered something. It's a position. You're in a place. You're in such a bad place that even if Jesus performed a miracle right in front of you, you would say that it's just a devil or you would make some kind of excuse because you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so um, Jesus is pointing to an inner, an inner reality, not just the accusation itself that the Pharisees said. Plus, that wouldn't make sense, right? If we were to say, okay, God inspired this so that for generations and for thousands of years, we would be able to use this devotionally and say, okay, this is teaching me how to live life. And this verse is telling me that if I see Jesus in person do something miraculous and I say it was the devil that did it, then I'm in trouble. Well, I'm not going to ever be in that situation, so therefore this whole passage doesn't apply. So I, I doubt that's true. I think this is applicable universally. Universally throughout time and throughout uh, cultures, there's the possibility of committing this sin. And this is here as a warning. But it wouldn't be a warning if we have to physically see Jesus like multiply bread and go, ah, he only did that because he's a sorcerer. Then it wouldn't apply to anybody except the people that this is originally written to. Is that, is that connecting with you? This is, this is written for, this is for timeless application for all generations. This is a sufficient word of God. So it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, not the blasphemy of Jesus. Ah, that's not Jesus. Jesus is the devil. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Okay. We have to take a better look. Another common explanation. Another common explanation is this. The unforgivable sin is the Holy Spirit does the work of conviction. Okay? You all know that. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. If you ever heard a sermon or a message or whatever, and you felt something inside of you like, man, that's true. That's the Holy Spirit doing that. It wasn't because that sermon was so awesome. God used it. Use that sermon, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the work of conviction. And so a common explanation is the unforgivable sin is you reject the work of the Holy Spirit. He's pressing conviction on you, and you're like, no, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it until the day that you die. So you resist the Spirit, and you don't repent, and then one day you die because you never repented. Guess what? You missed your chance. But, but that can't be the case because of uh, verse um, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So, so he's saying unforgiveness is not going to just, the door doesn't just close later in the age to come. The door closes now, right now, in 2013. The door is shut, and you're not going to be forgiven in this life or the next. You, you see the difference? He's, he's, so it's not saying 
If you just reject the Holy Spirit and keep rejecting the Holy Spirit until one day you die, well, then it's too late. Guess what, guys? That's every sin. That's every sin. If you keep stealing and stealing and stealing, and then you die and you never repented of it, you're, you're not with Christ. If you keep cheating on your spouse, cheating on your spouse, you keep, you keep, you keep clicking on porn, you keep, whatever it is, you keep doing those things, you never repent. Maybe you come to church and you dress real nice. Maybe you put money in the basket. Thank you. But that's not salvation. Salvation is repentance. So Jesus isn't saying God is not going to forgive anybody who doesn't repent. That's obvious. That's all scripture says that. But Jesus is saying there's one specific thing that if you do this, it is unlike all the other sins. All the other sins you always have until death or Jesus return to repent. But not this one. This one is one that if you commit it, even before Jesus comes back, even before you die, it's too late. You're done. Either in this age or the age to come. That sin will not be forgiven. All other sins will, if you repent. So repentance is always a requisite. But this particular one, repentance is not going to work now. That, that's not going to work now. You're done. So, what is it saying? Well, let's, let's take a, a, a closer look at what he's saying. Let's unpack this a little bit. Um, and, and it took me a while. I was wrestling with this, um, listening to sermons on it, looking at commentaries. This, so there's a lot to wrap our minds around, but I'm going to try to just break it down into little bite-sized pieces, little morsels. We could chew on it. And that has to do with the surrounding context. Okay? The, um, like the... Uh, you know, the guy getting ready for the Super Bowl and he says something and he said a lot of things, but they just pull out the one thing that's going to put him in hot water and they put that in the newspaper. And they rip it out of context. We don't want to do that. To understand what he's saying, let's look at this surrounding context. What's happening? What do he say before? What do he say after? What's happening here? OK, uh, so we want to take a closer look. The Pharisees are guilty of bearing bread fruit because they're bad trees. That's why he gives us that parable. You guys are bad trees. And that's why you're producing bad fruit. They repeatedly rejected Jesus as king. You remember just in chapter 12, he healed the guy with the withered hand. You remember that? And the Pharisees set him up. The Pharisees put the guy with the withered hand. They're like, so Jesus is going to heal him, and then we're going to trap him because it's the Sabbath, and we're going to get mad at him and tell him he broke the rules. He broke the law. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, you guys are, you guys are ridiculous. You guys, the, the, you, know, you guys have the law backwards. It's, you guys have religion upside down. And so he heals the man. Then the next moment, he heals uh, the next uh, event in verse 22. He heals a demon-possessed man. And now they say that he's got a, a demon. He's, he's demon-possessed. He's a sorcerer. So it's this culmination. It's not like the Pharisees, this is the first time the Pharisees said something. Every time he shows a miracle, they try to trap him. Every time he does something, they try to say, oh, it's this. It's this other thing. Remember two chapters ago, he said, John was like opposite of me. John was like the... The messed up hair, scraggly beard with locusts stuck in it, you know, with like food on his shirt and the shirt half tucked in. And he like limped around in the wilderness and he was preaching. And you guys are like, that guy's crazy. You know, he didn't eat anything. He was like starving himself, you know, like into the wild type of deal. That guy's nuts. Then Jesus came with his hair, you know, a little bit manageable and he had his, you know, he was appropriately dressed and he had sandals on. And he spoke well, and he went to synagogue like a good boy. They didn't listen to him either. They're like, ah, he drinks and he eats. What a glutton and a drunkard. Can't win. You can't win with the Pharisees. Why? Because they're bad trees. 
What are they rejecting? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Every time people saw that Jesus did something, the Holy Spirit has to be the one that opens your eyes. And as he opens your eyes, you have to go, wow, that's true. I need to respond to that. The Pharisees' eyes were being opened. They were seeing truth right in front of them. Instead of accepting it, they're rejecting it anyway. You remember Jesus said, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, how evil they were? If I would have done just a third of what I'm doing in front of you, they would have repented as evil as they were. Go back into those chapters, look up Sodom and Gomorrah, like Google it, and look at the stuff they did. It was crazy. But they would have repented if they just even saw some of this. The Pharisees see it over and over and over again. The Pharisees experience a high exposure of revelation. God is revealing truth to them over and over and over. He's proving it to them with miracles, with his teaching. He's showing them from their own scripture how they've got it wrong. They can't win any of these arguments. The crowds are wild. They're following him. He's multiplying bread. He's, he's, he's healing people. People that can't walk are walking and jumping. People that can't speak are speaking. People with thousands of demons in them. The demons are, 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 are flying out of that person. The person's being healed. I mean, you can't get more miraculous than the ministry of Jesus, and they still reject. And so this isn't a random person who re- reads a tract, you know, at a re- that was left behind at a restaurant and is like, yeah, hey, I don't believe that. This is different. This is more than that. And so the Pharisees were, being, were guilty of being impossible to convict. Do you see that? The Pharisees were impossible they were impossible. Maybe you know people like that in your life. You're like, oh, my goodness. You know, like we prayed and a miracle happened and they still they still don't. They, they, they still don't. They had a question about this passage. I explained it to them. It makes sense to them, but they still don't come. Are there, are there sometimes is it, is there's, are there people that are just impossible to convict? The Pharisees are certainly looking like they fit that category. They were they were impossible. It didn't matter what kind of revelation was given to them. An angel can come. They'll say that was a demon disguised as light. A miracle can happen. They'll say, well, Satan does miracles. You can explain it from Scripture, and they'll be like, eh, I like my interpretation better. Impossible to convict. And so um, the Pharisees asked for a sign. That, that's in verse 38. It's like, you know what? Okay, we'll settle this. We'll settle this. Give us a sign. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He healed the guy with the withered hand. He got the demon-possessed man who was blind. Now he sees. Now he's passing a 2020s test. It was before he couldn't see anything. He had never spoken before, or he hadn't spoken in a long time, and Jesus just waved his hand over him, said something to the demons, and now he's talking. And now they're just saying, well, show us a sign. And he says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to show you a sign. That's verse 38 and forward. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to show you a sign. You're going to get the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the fish for three days and then came out, the Son of Man is going to be buried for three days, and I'm going to come out. That's the only sign you're going to get. And his point is a wicked generation, Jesus says, a wicked, an evil, that's verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. You ever argue with like an atheist and they're like, well, prove it, prove it, prove it. How come you won't heal me? Heal me now. Heal me now. What? Why does he say an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign? Because they already, they already reject all the signs. The intelligibility of scripture the witness of Scripture standing the test of time, they don't care. The fact that there's no other explanation for a Jesus' resurrection from the grave, they don't care. It doesn't matter what you find out scientifically, it just evolved. It doesn't matter how intricately we find what we find about DNA. It doesn't matter how intricate, how each person has their own finger, it doesn't matter. It just popped into existence. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And then they get angry. 
You ever have a, a friend, sorry, you know, they're yelling at you? Somebody was telling me that this morning. I was witnessing to a friend, and he starts yelling at me. Right, because their problem isn't intellectual. They're not dumb. They're defiant. They don't want to hear it, guys. They don't want to hear it because the Holy Spirit is revealing it to them through you, and they're just going, oh, no, shut up, shut up, shut up. And the louder you talk, the louder they have to get. And so they get angry. Christians are dumb. They put out documentaries, and they find the goofiest Christians they can find and, and pretend like that represents us. Okay? It's defiance. People that are just they're impossible to convict. That's, that's who Jesus was dealing with in this passage. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not one sin. It's not one act. It's a position of staunch rejection. Okay? That's, that's clear in the text. He's not saying, oh, you said the wrong words. You should have never said that. They didn't even say anything about the Holy Spirit. They just said Jesus is a sorcerer. They didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you can say that about me all you want. You can, you can blaspheme the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. You can blaspheme Jesus. But don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I didn't, I didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit. Inside. What's behind your words? I'm not talking about the fruit. I'm talking about the tree. Okay? So it's not a, a thing that you say. It's a, a position. It might produce saying certain things. It's a position of, of defiant rejection of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict you of what's true. Right? The Bible talks over and over again about this. People who are highly exposed to truth, highly exposed to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they brazenly reject him. The Bible talks about that over and over. I, just, I had a hard time just picking a few. I mean, I just went, let's just go forget the Super Bowl game, man. Let's just go about all these. Let's, let's do this, you know. I didn't do that. But just for quick reference, if you want to jot it down or flip over to it, just in Matthew, just in Matthew alone, you remember in chapter 7, Jesus said, on that day, the day of judgment, there's going to be people that come up to me and they're like, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Isn't that a spiritual gift? It looks like a spiritual gift. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. We healed people. People were throwing their crutches. I was throwing hankies at them. You know, we did a huge TV ministry. And Jesus' response was, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. You must leave because I don't know you. But we did all this stuff that looks Christian. But you're not Christian. What's the prerequisite for salvation? All throughout Matthew and the Gospels, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. So obviously they didn't truly repent and didn't truly believe if he's saying, depart from me. They looked apart. So did the Pharisees. I mean, they, they were religious. They knew scripture. But they weren't. In that same chapter, Jesus talks about two guys that build a house. You remember that? One guy builds a house on rock and the other guy builds a house on what? Sand. Same house, same building permit, same architecture. I mean, it's the same. They're doing the same thing because what is the analogy? They're building their, their uh, uh, religious life, their religious life. But what is it founded on? All the things that they do and don't do. All they're going to church, uh, greeting people in the foyer, praying for people, going to prayer meeting, taking notes during the sermon, showing up at growth group, all those different things. Two people doing the same thing. One of them is on sand. One of them is on rock. What's the difference? One repented and believed on Jesus Christ. The other one thinks they're earning salvation by doing it. And then the storm hits. What's the storm? Judgment. He just said it in the previous verse in chapter 7. He said there's going to be a time where I, people stand before me. 
I'm the wind. And I'm going to blow on your house. And if you built it on me, the house will stand. You'll be with me. If you built it on whatever you can do, your own works, that you didn't repent, you didn't believe in me, that I needed to purchase that for you, it's built on sand. You'll be destroyed. Who are those people? He's not talking about drug addicts like, you know, people who obviously reject Jesus, but people that even if they look religious, but deep down inside they're rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And deep down inside they're not repenting, they're not convicted, or they're sensing conviction, but they're pushing against it. They, they They don't make it. All kinds of verses um, that explain that. Um, the best parallel, I'll just go to one other one. We're going to put it up here so you don't have to turn to it. But if you want to turn to it, it's in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, we have a passage that I think kind of coincides with this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say blasphemy, but we're going to look at this verse um, and see how closely it, it relates. Okay, So let's go there. I think it's going to really help us nail down what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin that if I commit it, There's no going back. If I cross this line, there's no forgiveness for me. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It says this. For it is impossible, not hard, not pretty difficult, impossible in the case of, now he's going to describe this kind of person that can't receive repentance, can't receive forgiveness. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Maybe they witnessed the healing, maybe they witnessed some miracle, doesn't matter. Then they fall away, in verse 6, they fall away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. It is impossible to restore that kind of person to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that passage. I did a lot of digging, a lot of research. Here's, here's, here's what he's saying. Okay? There's people that have barely heard about Jesus. They barely heard about him. They know a little bit about him. They heard, but not, you know, that's one kind of person. Then there's another kind of person that has high exposure to truth. Maybe they've been in church. Maybe they've done a lot of Sunday school. Maybe they've witnessed miracles. Their grandma prayed for them, and they were healed. And they're like, what? And grandma's like, because I prayed that specific prayer. And they're like, uh, uh. And deep down in the heart, they're starting to get, man, there's something more here, but I, I want to reject it because I want to live my own life. The Pharisees didn't want to be told what to do. They had a good gig going. And Jesus was dis- dis- disrupting that. Jesus was threatening that. And so they rejected him. So he- Hebrews 6 is saying there's a kind of people, they're even in church. They even... Um, are enlightened. They know the truth. They taste the heavenly gift. They understand that, th- that what the gift of Jesus is. They taste it. They didn't ingest it, but they tasted it. They got a piece of it. They understand what it is more than other people. And then it says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Why? Wow, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is work in their life. The Holy Spirit is doing something in them. He's exposing himself to them. They've tasted that. They've experienced that. And then at some point, verse 6, They fall away. They fall away. Now, some people say, now, that's people losing their salvation. I I don't think so. There's so many other verses that make it clear. Salvation is not based on works. It's based on grace. So if it's based on me coming or going or leaving or staying, that that doesn't compute. But what what is this saying? This is saying there can be a kind of person that is ministered to by the Holy Spirit, 
they taste truth, they understand truth, they get it, and they're not, it's like, it's not that they don't get the logic of it, they just say, nah, I don't want it. And so maybe they last in church for a year, two years, maybe they hang around for a while and look religious for a little bit, but nothing really changed inside, and it comes to a point where they just say, you know what, God, I don't want anything to do with you, and they walk away. Maybe they were baptized. When I baptize somebody, I don't know if it really happened inside of them. I think it did, otherwise I wouldn't. But it's an interior work. I don't have the spiritual x-ray goggles to see who, who really is, is a believer. You know, we can measure by fruit. But God sees the good trees and he sees the bad trees. And there are certain kinds of people that are exposed to the truth. They know the truth. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to them. And they still reject it anyway. So there's rejection, and then there's heinous rejection. Brazen rejection, like, I kind of get it, but I'm not sure, I'm not going to do it. And then like, oh, I get it. But I don't care. Guys, that, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in you, convicting you of sin, convicting you that you need Jesus. And even if with your mouth and your, your actions, you're kind of doing the whole Christian thing, but you never really... You never really repented. You never really gave your life to Jesus Christ. You never really believed on him. There's always something else, something lingering, some kind of resistance. Eventually, you come to the point where something breaks and you just, I, I just, you just reject. And everyone in church is like, what happened to so-and-so? What happened to so-and-so? It, it might be that this person fell away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit trying to convict that person to repentance. And so, this high exposure, staunch rejection. So here's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, guys. Here's the sin that can't be forgiven. It's a brazen, especially heinous, rejection of Jesus Christ in the face of high exposure to the gospel. So defiant that the Holy Spirit no longer presses conviction. How do I know that? Because he said, not in this age or the age to come. The Spirit just, you're done. I get that from the text. I get that from what Jesus just said. I get that from Hebrews 6. There's no repentance left for that person. So the Spirit can't possibly bring them to conviction. So the whole, that means the Holy Spirit backs off. You cross a line and the Spirit just goes, all right. And then that person just, that, that person's worse than they were when they started. Before they came into church, they were kind of like, I don't really believe Jesus. And now they're like, I hate Jesus. And now they start an atheist blog. Okay? That, that's what it looks like. How do I know that? Go back to Matthew 7. Just look at one more chunk. One more just little chunk that we didn't get into. This is really interesting, okay? Verse 43. Jesus does a parable, like a picture, like an analogy, an illustration of what a person is like who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a work in them, shows them truth. It looks like maybe they're coming alive, but then and they, just, they, they reject. And then they end up worse than they were in the beginning. Here's what he says. When the unclean spirit, when a demon, has gone out of a person. Okay, he's using this because this is what just happened in, in verse 22. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Okay, someone is demon oppressed and maybe some Christians come around them and say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Those demon, that demon leaves and that demon is kind of wandering in the spiritual realm and doesn't really have a job to do and kind of lost his gig and he's all depressed about it. Okay. And then it says, verse 44, then it says, 
I will return to my house from which I came. You're like, you know, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go back to that person. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Verse 45, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, even more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Okay? So it's possible that somebody comes in here, you say, Pastor, can you call the elders? This person's foaming at the mouth, and I just don't think it's a physical condition. I don't think it's pills. I think there's something spiritual happening here. Say it resonates with our spirits, and I say yes. And I call the elders. We're fasting, and we're praying, and we lay hands on the person. We say, in the name of Jesus, we rebuke you. That demon left because we prayed it. But if that person doesn't give his life or her life to Jesus Christ, it's a nice house. It's swept and it's clean. There's no more demons. They're not foaming at the mouth anymore. They go back to their job and they rescue their job. But they didn't change. Me and the elders aren't going to follow that person around all day, rebuking demons everywhere. So the demon goes, hey, pastor's not here. Other Christians aren't here. This person's at work. Perfect time. Everyone's out at lunch. Here's the Internet. Get that person to start clicking on stuff, get them down the wrong path, we're back. But now, I'm not coming by myself, I'm coming with a bunch of dudes, other demons, other spirits, and we're going to really take over this time. And now he's not just foaming at the mouth, now that person is, you know, head is spinning or whatever, who knows, okay? The condition of that person is worse than in the first. Now, what's, ha- what's happening here? Is this, this whole blasphemy of the spirit and then Jesus just decides to give a lesson on, on demon possession? No. It's an analogy. Just like it was worse for that person at the end than they were in the beginning, he says in verse 50, or verse uh, 45, the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. He's talking about the blasphemy of the Spirit. The Spirit is revealing himself to you, and you reject him, now you're worse off than before the Spirit reveals himself to you. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going to be judged. They were evil. But you're going to be judged worse because you're evil on top of the fact that I showed you a way out and you still rejected it. Your judgment will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like a person who's possessed by one demon, gets some help, but doesn't really change. And then those demons, plural now, come back and now that person's like hopeless. The state of that person's worse now than it was before. He's saying that's how it is with you. You didn't have the message, you didn't have the, and I came and I showed it to you. And I proved it with miracles. And I explained it from scripture. And you still reject. You're impossible. No matter how much exposure you get to truth, you reject me anyway. And you can cross a line from which you'll never come back. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit backs off, no longer does the work of conviction Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a brazen, heinous rejection of Jesus, no matter how high your exposure, especially in in the face of high exposure to the gospel, you reject him. And so the Spirit no longer does the work of conviction in you, and if the Spirit doesn't do the work of conviction in you, you can't repent. And so you come to a place where you can never go back. Now, I want to leave you before we leave. I just want to wrap this up with a few concluding thoughts, Okay. Just give me a couple minutes. I want to make sure we don't leave here like in a spiritual paranoia. Like, did I commit it? Did I commit it now? Did I commit it now? How about now? That, that's not, Jesus isn't trying to make you live a life where you're waking up in cold sweats, uh, wondering if you have or you haven't. Like he said, there's an in-group and an out-group, and you should know which one you're in. You might say, but I, I thought God was patient. I got, God was long-suffering. Yes, but apparently, according to this passage, he's not forever suffering. 
He's patient, but he has a line. That's clear in this passage. It's a warning. And we should take it as a warning. Some people say, I've heard preachers say, hey, if you're worried about it, eh, that probably means you haven't done it. I'm not sure about that. Could it be possible that somebody understands that they're rejecting Jesus and knows that they shouldn't reject Jesus but still reject him? Yes, because the problem isn't ignorance, guys. The problem is defiance. In order to defy something, brazenly defy something, you have to know what you're defying. And that's the, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So it's not about worry. Am I worried about it? I am worried about it. Oh, so that must mean I'm fine. You could be worried about it, but still not do anything about it. So it's not about worry. It's about defiance versus repentance. Um, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. If you're a believer, I want you to jot these verses down and look at them later. Okay? 2 Corinthians 1.22. I want you to, I'm, I'm giving you homework. I want you to look at these. If you're a believer, I don't want you to wake up in cold sweats. I want you to be assured. The Holy Spirit indwells you. 2 Corinthians 1.22. 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5, same book. 1.22 and then 5.5. 5. The third one's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Okay? 2 Corinthians 1.22. 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5, Ephesians 1, 13, 14. What do those verses say? When you come to Christ, God gives you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a deposit. He puts a down payment. He says, I'm going I'm to pick up the rest in the age to come. But here's the down payment. Does God put a down payment on something and doesn't intend to pay? Does God guarantee something and go, oops, you messed up? No. He guarantees it. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Same verses. When God seals something, we can go, <laughs> but God doesn't allow humans to break what he seals. Okay? So there's assurance of the Holy Spirit. If you've repented and you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for you and he rose again, there's assurance there. You do not walk through life going, did I commit the, did I commit the blasphemy? Did I commit? No. Okay, you've given your life to Jesus. You've genuinely committed your life to Jesus. If you look inside you and you never really genuinely did it, but you're kind of doing the Christian thing and you're kind of fooling everybody, then yes, you should be worried. Yes, you should be worried. If you're just doing the church thing, but it's not about repentance, if you're the kind of person where somebody says, you know, I was listening to the sermon and pastor said, I don't care, the, don't give me that, don't give me that. If that's the kind of life you live, I want to do the Christian thing, but don't tell me about what I need to repent of then yeah, you might be that person. Or you might be close, you might be skating the edge, you might be getting to that line. Because a believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, doesn't live a perfect life, but when you mess up, you have a sense of, man, I messed up, God help me. And that's the, that's the battle, that's the spiritual journey. Romans eight sixteen says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Not people that hang out with God, his children. Okay, uh, my eldest, my eldest child is R Raquel. She she could do anything, and but she's not gonna not be my child. She's my child, and that's the metaphor that God decided to use. When you're a child, you're a child. You've been brought into the fold, and so there's assurance. The spirit inside of you bears witness. Yes, you are a child. So there should be assurance. Okay, that's a guarantee. But if you are inwardly defiant toward God. If you inwardly, in some way, we're all defiant. In some way, we all defy, right? But if you, maybe you don't defy church. Maybe you don't defy, like, Sunday school or whatever. But inwardly, you're not receptive 
to the work of the Spirit. You're rejecting. You don't surrender to what Christ demands of you. You just, you just reject it inside. That, that, that could be a problem, guys, and that's the warning. Don't be that. Don't do that. Repent now. Don't, don't, don't skate that line. Um, now, the last thing I want to leave you, we, we, we can't see who did it and who didn't. I, I can't walk around and say, you know what? That guy, Frank, that left the fellowship, blasphemy of the spirit, no hope for that guy. If I knew that for sure, I would never call that guy. I'd never invite that guy back to church. I wouldn't pray for that guy because it'd be impossible for that person to repent. But we don't see that reality. I can't tell if somebody's just having a hard time, walked away a little bit, or if they committed the blasphemy of the spirit. Jesus isn't saying, figure out who did it and then kick them out of church. He's just giving the warning so that you know inside your own heart, are you defiant or are you repentant? Okay, so this isn't a, a, a... a judgmental thing, but somebody did ask me, well, what does this look like? What does this look like in real life? And I just want to give you a couple of live examples before we close, okay? What, what might this look like? It's tricky because I don't want to pigeonhole it, and it always looks like this. It could look different. You guys remember uh, several months ago, um, an uncle of mine was killed in a, in a car accident. He was on a bicycle, and an SUV came at 80 miles per hour, and his body literally shattered all over the road, okay? His life ended instantaneously. Never gave his life to the Lord. This is the same guy when I was 13 years old was sitting in my room and I'm reading scripture to him. I didn't even know what I was doing. I'm just like reading scripture, reading scripture, reading scripture. What about this one and this one? And God says this and God says that. Don't you understand these things? Don't you get these things? And I'm just like, you know, I probably wouldn't have passed like an evangelism course, but I I was just throwing scripture at him, you know. And then I'm like, do you believe these things? And then I look up and he's weeping. He's weeping. Okay, this guy's an ex-army. You, know, um, you know, he's got his battalion thing tattooed. He's got another tattoo of a skeleton busting out of his skin. You know, like this guy, he's like a bar brawler guy with stitches and stuff from bar fights. I mean, this guy doesn't make a living crying. And he's <laughs> weeping. And then I asked, him, I asked him three questions. Do you believe this is true? Through his tears. Yes. I believe this is true. High exposure. I'm giving him scripture. He grew up with a praying mom. He grew up with a mom that dragged him to church. High exposure. He's not fool. He knows what's true. And he says he knows what's true. You believe Jesus is, is the one that he can, do you believe he can save you? He says, yes. I said, do you want him? Do you want him to save you? <laughs> Through his tears. Yes. What is that, guys? That's not your normal dude, you know, in the bar. You pop in the bar, I'm like, hey, do you know Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you want him to save you? No, shut up. This guy's like, yes, through tears, yes. Third question, do you want to receive him right now? No. What is that? What is that, guys? That rocked my world for years. How do you come to the place where you know the truth? Clearly the Spirit is, is, the Holy Spirit is peeling back layers on your life and is convicting you, and you still at the end just say, No. Towards the end of his life, he would still show up at his mom's church in Florida and sit in the back drunk and heckle at the preacher. That's worse than he was when I knew him. Did he ever cross a line from which he never came back? I don't know, but it looks like it. That could be one way it looks. Some others of you know a personal family member of of me and Tina's. Some of you have met this person. And this person came to church, did things for church, would do things for other people and now left his family, left his wife, left his kids, 
left church, hates church, does what he can to, does what he can to keep his kids away from church, curses church. A guy from his church showed up at his shop and, hey, can I say, get out of here, get out of here. What is that? What is that? Somebody who's been in Bible studies, been baptized, has seen other people baptized, his kids are baptized. He sees how, how his wife is changed and they're delivered from drugs and there's miracles happening right in front of them. And now he hates church. He doesn't just not go, hates it. What is that? Now, this per- can I say, well, that person, I'm going to just write that person off. No, if you know who I'm talking about, pray for him. Pray for him. We don't know if he crossed that line. But there are people, guys, that are exposed to Scripture, and then they're worse off in the end because they just don't care. They just reject. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What should we leave here doing? We should be concerned about it. We should be concerned about friends, relatives that are kind of playing church and kind of doing the Jesus thing, maybe for a different reason. Maybe, the, you know, the Rotary Club didn't really work for them, so they're going to try church. You know, maybe they saw Jesus do something for them, and, and so they feel obligated. They feel obligated, so I'm going to come to church now. Maybe they feel like, well, I don't really feel meaning and purpose in life, but when I come here, I get to play on the team or hand out bulletins or, or help count money or do whatever. It doesn't matter. Help pick out chair colors, and I just feel purposeful at church, and so, yeah, I'm going to come for that. No. You come because if without Jesus Christ, you're dead. And you will be dead forever. You will continually experience death forever. Unless you say, you know what, Jesus took that death for me. And I repent. I deserve to die. Can you come to that point where you say, I deserve to die? You can look out there and read in the newspapers of people you think really deserve to die. You know, what's, uh, you know what, honey, sometimes I really believe in the death penalty for po- fools like this. We all deserve the death penalty. That's what the Bible makes clear. If you come to grips with that, you realize you deserve death. And the only way out is Jesus Christ. You repent and you believe and you're saved. That's the promise. And I'll just I'll honestly leave you with this. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to ask the worship team to come forward. I want to pray for all of you. Father, this message is um, difficult to unpack. It takes a while to kind of really get a grip on what it's saying. We ask that you would um, uh, drive the truth of it into our hearts, Lord. It's only a work that you can do. I I couldn't have done such a a perfect job at preaching this that uh, nobody could turn away. Uh, We are defiant by nature. By nature, we are born broken and we defy you. We reject you. And so we ask that you would uh, minister through your Holy Spirit to us, expose us to the truth of your gospel, Lord, and by your grace, give us the grace to respond. Give us the grace that we need to respond to it so we can um, escape judgment and so we can have the relationship that we were created to have with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' authoritative name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to rise and, and close.